Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Matthew Hofarth. Today is March 16th, 2021, and I'm speaking with Krista Kuljian, who is the author of Darwin's Hunch, Science, Race, and the Search for Human Origins. Thank you for joining us, Krista. Oh, it's good to be here, Matt. To start, how did you come to write this book about the history of science, race, and anthropology in South Africa? What is it about these topics that called to you? Well, a few things led to me writing this book. First, I studied the history of science in the early 1980s with paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould and biologist Ruth Hubbard at Harvard. And they both emphasized how science does not exist in a vacuum and that it's shaped by its social and political context. And then also, I've lived in South Africa for close to 30 years. I'm originally from Boston. I opened the South Africa office for the Michigan-based Charles Stewart Mott Foundation in 1992. And about 15 years ago, my career shifted to writing. So for a long time, I've wanted to write about the search for human origins. I mean, the Sterkmantine Caves and the Cradle of Humankind are right on Joburg's doorstep. So Darwin's Hunch is my second book, and it brought me back to the history of science and allowed me to explore some questions that I think maybe my professors, Stephen Jay Gould and Ruth Hubbard, might have asked, like, how has the changing social and political context shaped the search for human origins? And for example, what impact did colonialism and empire have on the views of scientists studying human evolution in the early 20th century? So part of what I found in my years of research for this book in many archives is that for more than two centuries in this field, scientists have seen black people as specimens and not as human beings. And the field of paleoanthropology is built on a foundation of racist science and white supremacy. And I must warn listeners that I'm sure some of the stories we'll we'll talk about from the book are upsetting. So to start with, I mean, we can go back all the way to Linnaeus in the mid 1700s, who first named humans as Homo sapiens. And he divided us into four varieties defined largely by geography. But what a lot of people don't realize is that he created a fifth group called Homo monstrosus, which included what he called monstrous or abnormal people. And he put the Khoi and the San people of Southern Africa in that category. So this naming was dehumanizing. And it was so powerful, it sent a painful ripple effect across centuries. Those are some of the things that brought me to really dive into this topic and to write this book. Your book is titled Darwin's Hunch. What was Darwin's Hunch? And what does it have to do with the science of race? Well, in 1871, Charles Darwin published The Descent of Man. And in that book, he wrote that he believed that all humans had common origins in Africa. 
But his theory was not widely accepted at the time. I mean, scientists argued that humans had evolved in Europe or perhaps Asia. And that really came from the assumption that Europeans were superior to other people around the world and that there was a hierarchy of race. So the book is divided into three parts, looking at how the social and political context in each time frame interacted with the science of paleoanthropology and later genetics. So the first part covers the period from 1870 through to the 1940s that was shaped by colonial thinking when Robert Broom and Raymond Dart were active in the field. And the second part looks at the 1950s through to the 1980s that was influenced by apartheid in South Africa and when Philip Tobias was a prominent scientist. And the third part follows the late 1980s through to the present, which is really post-apartheid South Africa. And this is when genetics starts to have a real impact. So the book looks at the past 150 years, showing that the evidence has really built up over time, the fossil evidence, genetics evidence, that Darwin was correct, that all human beings on Earth today do have shared origins in Africa. So that explains the title. But can I tell you one amazing story? In the late 19th century, when Darwin wrote The Descent of Man, the search for human fossils was on. And explorers found Neanderthal fossils in Germany, in France, and elsewhere in Europe. And others were searching across Asia, looking for evidence there. But no one was looking in Africa. And then in 1912, a lawyer and an amateur archaeologist named Charles Dawson found a fossil in a gravel pit in Piltdown, which is in Sussex, England. And he shared his findings with Sir Arthur Smith Woodward, who was at the British Museum, and the two of them presented the findings. So the Piltdown fossil had a large ape-like cranium and a more human-like mandible. And there was really great national pride at this announcement. I mean, people, people were concluding that humans had first evolved in Sussex, England, but in 1953, more than 40 years later, when there were more advanced chemical tests available, the fossils were found to be a forgery. So they were not ancient fossils at all. Someone had stained and filed a modern human cranium and the mandible of a modern chimpanzee. Piltdown man hoax exposed was the headline in the New York Times. And for decades, quite a few prominent scientists had been off on the wrong track. So hundreds of papers and articles have been written since then about what happened at Piltdown and who was responsible. And many people have viewed Piltdown as kind of a mystery whodunit story, kind of a detective story. But very few scholars have really engaged with the scientific racism that was at play. And I thought maybe if I could read you one paragraph from Darwin's hunch about this part of the story. It goes, the hoax illustrates how false scientific data 
can be accepted quite easily when it fits within existing expectations. Scientists expected that humans evolved in Europe, so they readily accepted the evidence. Mistakes are clear with hindsight, but false information presented as fact can be welcomed because of assumptions that are incorrect. Racist thinking at the start of the 20th century was certainly a part of what created the environment in which a fallacious fossil find in England could be readily accepted. I like to tell that story to kind of give people a sense of how, you know, when we talk about the social and political context shaping the science, this is one example of that. Your book is filled with many fascinating characters and events. Much of the early part of your book talks about anthropologist Raymond Dart, who you mentioned earlier. Could you tell us a bit more about him, his career, and why he's important to the search for human origins and ideas about race? Sure. Raymond Dart was from Australia, and he was educated there and in the UK before he moved to South Africa in 1922. He came to Johannesburg as the head of the Department of Anatomy at Wits University. And most people know of Raymond Dart because in 1925, he described the Taung child skull, which is a famous fossil found in South Africa. Writing for Nature, he named it Australopithecus africanus, meaning Southern Ape of Africa. So just as Darwin was rejected with his idea in 1871, this idea of darts was rejected as well, that, um, that somehow the Taung child skull showed that humans had pre-human ancestors in Africa. And remember, scientists were still, you know, focused on Piltdown Man. So what many people don't know about Dart is that when he arrived in South Africa, he started a human skeleton collection. Now, he had seen these collections in Europe and the UK, and he was especially impressed with the Terry human skeleton collection in St. Louis in the US. And the motivation for starting these collections was to understand comparative anatomy. And scientists thought that humans could be divided into separate and distinct racial types. So they thought that these pure racial types, which we now know do not exist, would give them a clue to understanding human evolution. So Dart started his own human skeleton collection at Fitz and classified each one by racial type. And Dart was very interested in the anatomy of the indigenous people of Southern Africa, especially the Khoi and the San. And he hoped that understanding their anatomy would give him a clue to human evolution. So in 1936, he led a Witz expedition of scientists to the Kalahari, and he gathered people there to take measurements and to make face masks. So one family patriarch named Kuris, uh, along with his daughter Kanako and her daughter, Klein Kanako and Kerry Kerry, 
were among the people that Dart and his Fitz colleagues met and they measured them on that trip. So they, they measured every detail of their anatomy um, and saw those details as indicators of race. This was really part of um, the field of physical anthropology at the time, and it was invasive. I mean, there were no standard procedures in place at the time. I, I looked for them um, in terms of informed consent. So in one chapter, I really focus on this Witz expedition and the people involved. After that expedition, uh, Dart brought members of this same San community to Johannesburg and placed them on display at the Empire Exhibition, which was a celebration of the 50th anniversary of the city of Johannesburg. And speakers at that open air pavilion, they spoke about the San's physical characteristics and they referred in demeaning ways to their role in the evolutionary chain from ape to man. They called them, uh, they used a term at the time, missing link. When Clarice and Kanako and their family returned to the Kalahari, they had been evicted off the land. So for close to 50 years under apartheid, they were dispersed and their community was destroyed. So I spent a lot of time in the Dart archive and uncovered a very disturbing story about Kanako's daughter, Kiri Kiri. When she was a teenager in 1939, she was in the hospital and she died of pneumonia. But the superintendent of the hospital wrote to Raymond Dart to alert him that she was there. Now, even before she died, Dart was arranging that her body would be brought to Witz because he thought that she represented this pure racial type. And Dart viewed Kiri Kiri's body and her skeleton as a specimen to be studied. I spent years looking to find out more about Kiri Kiri's life and her death. And the story doesn't end in the 1930s. Her extended family and their descendants brought a legal land claim forward in the mid-1990s, and they won that claim in 1999. So I follow that story in the third part of the book. So this story of Carrie Carey and her family is part of Raymond Dart's legacy as well. And he brought these anthropological practices into the 20th century. And I just want to mention here that the South African San Institute developed a San Code of Research Ethics in 2017 that is excellent. And it covers issues of respect, honesty, justice, and fairness, and research protocols. But just going back for a moment to the 1930s and 40s, Jan Smuts, who was the prime minister of South Africa, was very supportive of Raymond Dart and his fellow scientist, Robert Broom, who we haven't really talked about, but he had also been part of the human skeleton trade. And he was a paleontologist, quite a famous one. Um, Dart and Broom and Jan Smuts called Koi and San people living fossils, which is completely wrong. 
and inappropriate. I mean, if you are a living human being in the 20th century, you are not a fossil. But DART and SMUTs, they work together to develop a sun reserve similar to the reservations that were developed in the United States. Now, in South Africa, the legislation didn't pass, but it's one illustration of how the push for segregation existed in South Africa long before apartheid. So I've just shared with you, you know, an introduction to the context at the time, but this legacy of racism and of racialized bias is embedded in the foundation of the field of human origins and paleoanthropology, and it still affects the field today. One of the main characters from the second part of your story is Philip Tobias. Tobias is a sympathetic individual as both an anti-apartheid campaigner and a decorated scientist. And yet he was reluctant to give up the idea of race and its utility for paleoanthropology. Could you explain that tension between being a scientist who believed in the concept of race and yet one who struggled to end the racist system of apartheid? Sure. Philip Tobias was Raymond Dart's student in the 1940s and 50s, and he took over from Dart to head the Department of Anatomy at Witts Medical School in 1959. And as a young Jewish student at that time, he was deeply affected by World War II. Uh, the Holocaust really raised scientific questions for him about race. He was supportive of Witts University remaining open to black students as apartheid was imposed in the 50s and the 60s. But as Dart's protege, Tobias embraced race typology, and he was very slow to embrace ideas from statistics and genetics that showed great variation across individuals and groups, rather than this idea of pure racial types. And he saw Dart as a father figure. So as you say, he embodied many contradictions. I mean, Tobias enthusiastically continued to lead trips to the Kalahari that involved measuring every part of a San person's anatomy, as Dart did, including women's labia. And he continued to take face masks at every expedition across Southern Africa, and he built the human skeleton collection as well, well into the 1980s. One of the stories that I tell in the book starts in 1961, and Tobias exhumed the skeletons of Cornelius Koch II and several of his family members in Campbell, which is in the Northern Cape. And he promised the Koch family that he would return the skeletons in two years after scientists did research. But he kept them at Witz until the family approached him 35 years later in 1996, saying that they wanted their ancestors' remains returned. And it turns out that they weren't reburied in Campbell until 2007. So this story is really about power and race and science. 
and a family under apartheid not being able to approach a really famous professor. I don't think that Tobias ever fully reconciled his anti-apartheid stance and his politics with his anthropological practices. Now, Tobias is well known for working closely with the Leakies in East Africa for decades, and he described Homo habilis. It's interesting to look at how the international focus on human origins research shifted away from South Africa as a result of new fossil finds uh, in East Africa and as a result of apartheid. The apartheid government did not support research on human evolution, largely for religious reasons, but Tobias kept research going at the Sterkmantin Caves. There's another story uh, later in the book about how Philip Tobias in 1984 went to New York City with the original Taung skull uh, to participate in an event at the American Museum of Natural History. And he carried the skull in a special carry cot on the plane. Now, Tobias was getting ready to celebrate the 60th anniversary of Raymond Dart's article about the skull in Nature. But he really wasn't thinking about the fact that South Africa was an international pariah at the time and that pressure was building against apartheid. So at JFK, to his surprise, he was escorted by armed guards and whisked through customs into a stretch limousine with tinted windows. Meanwhile, anti-apartheid groups had gathered outside the museum protesting against the South African fossils that were in the exhibit. And one of the placards read, apartheid fossils not wanted. So Tobias recalled this later, and I'm just gonna read one of his quotes looking back on this. He said, it was with the most mingled of feelings that I confronted this turn of events. On the one hand, I had every sympathy with the anti-apartheid sentiments of the protesters and was sorely tempted to cross the road and stand with them as I had often stood with students in Johannesburg. On the other hand, the very idea of dubbing the Taung child who had lived in Southern Africa some two and a half million years before settlers from Europe had even moved into South Africa as an apartheid fossil was painful, if not ludicrous. So after apartheid ended in the early 2000s, Tobias was well known for saying over and over again, we are all one species. We are all one human race, which was an important message. As you make clear in Darwin's hunch, Despite the dismantling of apartheid in the early 1990s and the reclamation of political power by black South Africans at the same time, the vast majority of South African scientists, both past and present, have been white. Are there more opportunities for black South Africans to become scientists today, or is there still a lack of progress on this front? There has been progress in this area, but it has been very slow. One of the things I tried to do in the book was to shine a light on a number of Black South Africans 
who worked in paleoanthropology, who were not acknowledged for their work. Daniel Mosesle, who worked with Robert Broom, uh, George Moenda, Saul Satole. Fortunately, a book has just been published about Saul Satole, entitled The Forgotten Scientist by Lorato Troc. Stephen Matsumi and Nkwane Malefe worked alongside lead scientist Ron Clark in the 1990s and were responsible for finding the full skeleton of Little Foot in the rock in Sterkfontein. And they were acknowledged for their work, but they had not had the opportunity under apartheid to further their formal education in science. Miriam Tawani is the first Black South African woman to achieve a PhD in paleoanthropology from Fitz University. And that was as recent as 2012. She's now the curator of the Ditsong Museum in Pretoria, where the broom archives are and the skeleton of Mrs. Pless is held there. She and I made a trip to Taun together, which is where she's from. Lee Berger's work with Sadiba, Rising Star, and Homo Naledi in the Cradle of Humankind has brought a lot of attention to South Africa. And the third part of the book takes a closer look at those finds and the demographics of the scientists um, and the students working on those projects. And there continues to be a pattern of big international projects that are often led by visiting researchers from Europe and the US. And strong international networks don't always open up for local students. And I really believe that universities and funders need to support more time on the ground to work with South African students and scholars. There is a growing number of young black scientists entering the field. There are supportive programs in South Africa. The Human Evolution Research Institute at the University of Cape Town is doing great work. And the Paleo Research Institute at the University of Johannesburg led by Dipuyo Khotleng, is also really doing great work with a lot of young people, but there's a lot of work to be done. And I must say in, in science more broadly in South Africa, it's very exciting to see a growing number, especially of young black women entering science, but it's, it's far from where it should be. Krista, what lessons would you like listeners and readers to take away from your book? about how science, politics, and race have intersected in South Africa's past and present? I think that one important message is that it's not possible to separate the science from the scientist, nor to separate the scientist from the society in which they're working. This is true globally. It's not just in South Africa. Science is influenced by the society in which it's embedded. 30 years ago, the biologist, my professor Ruth Hubbard, wrote, scientific objectivity offers no protection against prejudices that scientists share with their society. And I think it's important for students and scholars around the world working in the field of human origins, whether it's paleoanthropology, paleontology, archaeology, geology, genetics, to know about the history of their discipline. 
There are many scientists who still say that history is not relevant to their work today. And I disagree with them. The history of science is especially important in these fields. And I guess one message also is that this is not only important for scientists. It's important for all of us as human beings. At the beginning of our discussion, I said that the field of human origins is built on a foundation of racist science. So today in 2021, as we all contemplate our existence as humans and review the fossil record and engage with the genetic research, we have to be aware of these layers and this racist foundation. It's only with that awareness and that knowledge that humanity will be able to build a more complete understanding of human origins that embraces everyone. Thank you, Krista, for sharing your work and your perspectives with us. Krista Kuljian's book is Darwin's Hunch, Science, Race, and the Search for Human Origins from Jakana Media. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. You can find more resources for exploring this topic other podcasts, video forums, archival spotlights, as well as opportunities to connect with our community of scholars at chstm.org. This podcast is made possible with the generous support of the Pew Charitable Trusts, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and the Rita Allen Foundation.